0: It could not have been a worse week to be in Revelation chapter 11. I'm just going to give you that little disclaimer here as we begin. You know, thank you for enabling uh, JT and Jason and I to go to Nashville uh, to be a part of the annual Southern Baptist Convention along with 15 or 16,000 of our close friends there. Um, but we needed more time in Revelation 11 to get ready for today. I'll just I'm just saying that up front. All right. But we're going to work our way through it. Gary and I were talking, Gary Bitten and I, before the service. We may not get past chapter verse 2, but we're going to work our way through this, okay? So, um, Lottie Moon, all of us as good Southern Baptists will know who Lottie Moon was, our missionary there in China. Our Christmas offering is named after her. Lottie Moon said, I have the firm conviction that I am immortal till my work is done. Jim Elliot as he went to the Auk, Indian, Indians said the same thing in a letter to his mother and father. He wrote them before he left and he said, remember, you are immortal until your work is done. But don't let the sands of time get into the eyes of your vision to reach those who still sit in darkness. They simply must hear. So they both understood that we are immortal until God is finished with us, until our work is done. And we have in our text today two witnesses who seem to be at the center of this chapter. And these these two witnesses are faithful. Now, whether or not they are individuals or whether or not they are representative of something else, we'll talk about that. But we have these two witnesses and they are faithfully proclaiming. God's word in the face of satanic opposition, in the face of a rebellious, hostile world, as we see. And they do that faithfully. Now, the text gives us a period of time that they do that. But regardless of what that time means, they do it until God says they are finished. And then they are killed. They are murdered. And then they rise. So. This chapter, I mean, just look at it. Terry was reading it and brother, I appreciate the way you read it. Thank you for doing that. Thank you for doing it slowly. I don't know if you intended to do it slowly, but thank you for doing that. Okay. thank you for reading through it, because as you look at this text, we see a temple. And we see it being measured and we see two witnesses who are prophesying and preaching and teaching and we see them doing that for a specific period of time for 42 months. And we see them doing it in sackcloth. And we see two olive trees. And we see two lampstands. And we see fire coming out of their mouth upon their enemies. And we see them speaking and shutting up the heavens for three and a half years. We see them, the text says, carrying out all kinds of plagues, whatever they desire and as often as they desire it. And we see this beast rising up out of this bottomless pit making war on them. And he kills them. And their bodies lie in the street. For three and a half days, it tells us. And people start a new international holiday to commemorate their being killed. And then breath comes into them and they rise and they ascend up into heaven. And there's an earthquake and 7,000 people are killed. And those who are not killed give glory to God. Oh, my word. Other than that, there's not much going on here. And then we break out into this awesome worship service as the seventh trumpet is sounded. And 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 I do follow the line of teaching that basically says that the book of Revelation is structured in such a way that it works toward Revelation 11. And, and it's kind of the pinnacle there. And if you look at, at Revelation, and Terry didn't read this far, I didn't ask him to, but it says there in verse 15, the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Why is that not at the end of the book? why is it here and not there now it'll be restated at the end of the letter in a different way but so in, in a way things are working toward revelation 11:15 and then they they kind of Revelation that follows 13 through 17, especially details the same kind of suffering and difficulty and persecution and hell breaking loose upon the earth and upon the church. We see that before Revelation 11 and we see it after Revelation 11. So it, just the way the whole book is structured, I think, brings highlight to that whole point that the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And we see that there. So this chapter 11 while there is no consensus on what all of these things I just mentioned mean, OK, there is no consensus on what each of these details in this passage mean. Some take it pretty literally. Some take it completely symbolically. Others take it as a combination of those two. All right. But there is a clear consensus on what these this chapter means. There's a clear consensus on how this chapter can be applied. It goes all the way back to what we saw where the people of God are sealed. Those who have washed their robes in the blood of the Lamb and have their sins forgiven. These are the ones who are able to stand in the face of the judgment and wrath being poured out. Who can stand? And the answer is those that are sealed. And these that are sealed... Here we seem to have this picture that they are safe. They are safe in the temple of God. And even in the midst of this safety and security, the rage of Satan, the demons of hell, the Antichrist, who is the embodiment of that, will do all that they can to make war against God and his people and his message. And many will be killed in the process of that struggle. But even in the face of this satanic ob- Satanic opposition. God preserves his own. He empowers them with his spirit and his gospel will go forth. His kingdom will come. His will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's what this chapter means. Now, there's a whole lot of stuff in there. Okay, there's a whole lot of stuff in there. Let's start in verses one and two. John tells us, as Terry read. He said, I was given a measuring rod like a staff and was told, rise and measure the temple of God, the altar and those who worship there but do not measure. Here's a distinction. The court outside the temple, leave that out for it's given over to the nations and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. So John, uh, assumedly under the instructions of the angel, is given this rod. The word in the Greek language is is kalamos. It actually refers to a a, a reed kind of picture a piece of bamboo. It grew in the in the valley there in the Jordan Valley. It's a hollow stalk, we're told. It's light, so you can cut it down, and it was cut into appropriate lengths and used to measure. So John is given this rod. He's given this this piece of of a plant, if you if you will, and he's told to measure. He's told to measure a temple. And he's told to lay it out, if you will. So in the Bible. Measurement is seen a lot. And commentators tell us that you can kind of take those two the act of measurement and and categorize it in one of two ways, okay? One way is being measured off for judgment. It's being measured off. It's like God is saying, All right, I'm going to judge this particular city or this particular area or this particular people. And that seems to be the case in the parallel passage that all commentators point us to when we come to Revelation chapter 11, which is Ezekiel. OK, Ezekiel's as hard to understand as, as Revelation is, for crying out loud. So, uh, you know, you read these commentaries, you go, I'm not sure that helps me much to go to Ezekiel. But you go to the book of Ezekiel and it closes out. Revela- Ezekiel 34 through 40 is this detailed account of Ezekiel being given instructions to measure the temple. ...to measure God's temple. And not just the temple. He's told to measure the doorways, the thresholds, the rooms, the spaces. There's great detail given as to how Ezekiel is to measure this place. And we're told why in Ezekiel chapter 43. In verse 10 it says, As for you, son of man, describe to the house of Israel the temple, that they may be ashamed of their iniquities... And they shall measure the plan. And if they are ashamed of all that they have done, make known to them the design of the temple and its arrangement, its exits, its entrances. That is its whole design and make known to them as well all its statutes and its whole design and all its laws. Write it down in their sight so that they may observe all its laws, all its statues and carry them out. So it seems that God is saying here. Measure the temple, show it to them in all of its glory and size and the statutes and laws that it represents. If they obey that, good. If they don't, and and Ezekiel shows us that indeed it was judged. They were judged. The other way measurement is used is, is more of a positive note. In Revelation chapter 21. The new city, the new Jerusalem, the holy bride of Christ that we referred to in a song this morning is going to come down out of heaven, as adorned as a bride for her groom. And it will be measured, specifically measured. And those in it will be measured. And it's God's way of saying, this is mine. These are mine. They are safe. They are secure. I have marked them off and they are they are cared for me. I think about Jesus saying that he is the door to the sheep. That he is he is the sheepfold in this picture of being in, enclosed by Christ and being safe. That's the picture that I have here. So so then the question is, well, what exactly is this temple and who exactly are these people that are in it and those that are not? That depends on who you read. <laughs> depends on. some see this literally. OK, some see it symbolically and some see it as a combination of these two. I referred earlier in our study to Revelation to the preterist. Preterist are those who see the book of Revelation pointing to and speaking to the fall of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. They see all the events of Revelation looking back toward that as having already occurred. I don't hold that. I really don't see how you can hold that position. What did that letter mean then to John's recipients and to us if it was all done in A.D. 70? So there's that view. Others... See John speaking about a heavenly temple and throughout the book of Revelation, when a temple is referred to, it is referred to as a spiritual dwelling place, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven. Now, my struggle as I've been reading through this and studying through this is that that heavenly temple will not have an outer court, I don't think. And it won't be trampled on by the nations. It won't be trampled on by Gentiles. So where does that fit into this idea that it's a heavenly structure? So is John talking about an earthly temple? Is he talking about a physical temple that will be rebuilt at some point in time? Because the temple was destroyed in A.D. 70 and and Revelation, based on the way I understand and we've been teaching it, is Revelation was written 25 or 30 years after that. So is he talking about a physical temple that will be rebuilt in Jerusalem? And many say yes. Many hold to the position that during the tribulation, the Antichrist will come. He will make an agreement with the, with the Jewish people. They will rebuild their temple. He will allow them or they will begin the sacrificial system again for three and a half years. And then he'll renege on that covenant and on that promise and seat himself on that place of worship because that was the goal all along for him to be worshiped. That seems to be what Paul writes about. In second Thessalonians, he says in chapter two, starting in verse one, now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together with him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in your mind or alarmed either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to say to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. So Paul's writing to the Thessalonians and saying, don't don't be concerned that this day has already come. It's not come yet. And here's what he says. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. So Paul seems to be saying here that as we approach the end of the world, this powerful ruler will rise up, Allah, Daniel chapter 9. What Daniel talks about in some of his prophecies, this 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 one will rise up. He will make a covenant with the Jews to rebuild the temple. They'll reestablish animal sacrifices, do that for a period of time. And then all of that will stop and he'll exalt himself. And it seems that there's places in the scriptures that it's clear that that's what this is talking about. Now, the issue there is that did not the writer of Hebrews say that this sacrificial system is obsolete from now on? That with the sacrifice, crucifixion of Jesus, all of that's done away with. I mean, it says in, in Hebrews chapter 9, Christ himself has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Hebrews 9:26. Later on in chapter 10, referring to the sacrifice of Jesus, it says it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away our sin. But yet it is Jesus who sacrificed himself, entered into the true heavenly temple, which this earthly one was just a copy of, the writer of Hebrews tells us. And then some would answer, well, you know what? I don't think the Antichrist cares what it says about, cares what it says in Hebrews. Which is true. He doesn't. So, some say there will be a temple rebuilt. Others say that John is referring to the church. To the people of God. God's new covenant people. And throughout the New Testament, this is the case. Paul talks about us being the spiritual dwelling place of God. Peter talks about that. It talks about that in Ephesians, that he is reconciling to himself these, these Gentiles and Jews and making for himself one new man and building for himself this holy structure. So it does refer to the people of God as being the temple of God. And earlier in Revelation, remember over in Revelation chapter 3, this was the promise To him who overcomes, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God and never again will he leave it. So there's this clear picture of the people of God being the temple of God. And those that would say that hold to that position, say that that John is told to measure the triumphant church and those that are in it as God's way of designating and roping that off and saying these are mine and they are safe. But what does it mean then that the church is going to have fire come out of its mouth and its opponents are all going to be burned up? And what does it mean that the church is going to have the power to shut up the heavens for three and a half years and it not rain? Now, there's answers to those questions. I'm just telling you, this is the deal, (laughs) This is the struggle as you work through Revelation chapter 11. There's no reason that commentators are in agreement. It's the hardest chapter in the book of Revelation to understand. And to get exactly what all these details mean. How is it the church is going to be killed and lay unburied in the street for three and a half days? What does that mean? Well, I'm still working on it and I'll let you know when I figure it out. Okay. All right. I will. Um, and about these time frames, let's talk about that for just a second. Same detail. All right. So it says here that they will prophesy for 42 months. Next verse, chapter three, they'll be granted authority for twelve hundred and sixty days. Later on the passage, it says down in verse nine that for three and a half days, their bodies will lie on the street and then they'll be raised. It says three and a half days the breath of life will come into them and they'll be raised up. Later on in the book, chapter 12, we're going to have that same reference to twelve hundred and sixty days that the woman who gives birth to the male child flees into the wilderness. So, again, these time frames, are they literal? Like on a calendar? Or are they symbolic? Some hold that the numbers are accurate, that they're literal numbers, but they hold symbolic meanings. And some say, no, they're absolutely literal in every way. Mark it on the calendar. Mark it off on the calendar. You can keep track of it that way. But not all agree on that. My Old Testament professor at Southwestern, Dr. David Garland, who's written a a really good commentary on Revelation, he says this. And he refers back to Daniel. In fact, let's do that. Flip over to Daniel chapter 9. Let me just read this to you. We will not spend a lot of time on it. Because we cannot spend a lot of time on it. But key to understanding Revelation chapter 11 and some following passages is what exactly Daniel's talking about in, Revel in in Daniel chapter nine, starting in verse 24, when he talks about the 70 week period. Daniel chapter nine, starting in verse four, 70 weeks are decreed about your people. Now, that's 70 periods of seven. Okay. A week is is that's how it's distinguishing it up. So these are 70 weeks, 70 weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit and to anoint a most holy place. Know, therefore, and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem. Jerusalem. So the coming in of an anointed one, a prince, there will be seven weeks. Then for sixty two weeks, it shall be built again with squares and a moat, but in a troubled time. And after sixty two weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. And he shall make a strong covenant with many for a week and for half a week. And he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering and on the wing of abominations shall come one who will make desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. All of that, that reference in Daniel, many point back to Revelation and say that helps us understand it. it, You got to work through it to have help in understanding it. But all these time frames Are given for us and some see it very literally some see it symbolically some see it as the period of time from when Jesus came and was crucified and resurrected until he returns. Reputable scholars have done timelines about the time when the the children of Israel were released to go back into the Holy Land until the time that Jesus came. I mean, there's a lot of ways to look at this church i'm just giving you all this kind of overview of how you can look at it and how difficult some of these details are. These time references are paralleled again back into the Old Testament. Elijah sealed up the heavens and it didn't rain for three and a half years. Daniel focuses on that later on in chapter twelve again that three and a half year period of time times, a time, times, and half a time a time is 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 one year. Times is two years, a half, so three and a half years. That time reference is there again. And again, in Revelation 12, the woman will flee into the desert for twelve hundred and sixty days. Some say this is just a period of the final time of humanity before Jesus returns again, before the Antichrist comes. Here's the point. At least in this first part of the passage. God knows who are his. All right. He has sealed and measured off. And it's clear to me in these first two verses of Revelation 11. There is a safe place and there is an unsafe place. Right? I mean, it says there. Inside, those who are in the temple, at the altar, worshiping and carrying on there, they are measured. They are secured. Outside, outside the temple, in this court where the nations are, it is unsafe. And it is those who are waging war. And ravaging it seems. So there's a place that's safe. There's a place that's unsafe. Those outside are not counted. Those on the inside are counted. And so we see that God marks his. God marks us. And we are safe and secure in there. By the way, later on in Thessalonians chapter 2 verse 8. Here's what the Bible says about this lawless one who's raised up. Verse 8 says, and then the lawless one will be revealed Whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow with the breath of his mouth. He is frightening. He is powerful. He has the power of hell behind him. But the breath of Jesus' mouth destroys him. That's the point that we make, I think, in this temple and in this measurement. And here's the application I want you to see that your identity in Christ is sealed. If you belong to him, we should read this and by God's grace, through his Holy Spirit, read through this and say, I may not understand every detail of this symbolism, but I want no part of it. I want no part of this wrath being poured out. I want no part of judgment coming upon the ecology of our world, upon the seas and the and the and the fresh water. I want no part Of these demonic hordes stinging and bringing such terrible inflicted pain upon those who would pray to die and can't. I want no part of this hellish army that comes out and kills a third of mankind. Who can stand in the face of that wrath? Those who have washed their robes in the blood of Christ are sealed and safe and they can stand. Take that out of these first two verses and rest in it, church. Rest in it. There's two witnesses. How are we doing on time? Uh, let me see. You know what? We're going to wait on that. Because I, I need to spend some more. I don't not study and I'm not going to say I need to. I need to figure this out before I come back and talk to you about it. I know that would be helpful. Uh, and I think I, I think I have a pretty good handle on that part of it. Um, and you can look at your sermon notes and, and see um, see where we're going to go with this. And, and I think I get the main point and I'm And I'm pretty certain I understand how we can apply that. Um, I would encourage you to go back and read in the book of Zechariah, starting in chapter 3 and chapter 4. And get some parallel background from that as we, as we move forward. What we see here is that God is granting authority to those witnesses. And they will carry out that mission. They will carry out what God has called them to do for a distinctive, clear period of time, I believe. And they will do it in the power of the Holy Spirit. This, this olive trees and lampstands, we've already seen that earlier in the book of Revelation. That lampstand is just doing what Jesus said. Light your light shine before men. That they may glorify your father in heaven. So it's taking the message of Jesus empowered by the spirit of Christ out into this world and doing it as long as God says to do it. And when he's finished with us, he will take us to himself. We'll we'll get into that. You know, it's important, I think, that we as God's people and we've talked about this. I was thinking about this flying back on the plane from Nashville. Um, and just in reading through some of this, I was just thinking back over the last year and a half, year year and eight months. And there was a reason we worked our way through the Psalms, most specifically the Psalms of Lament, as we were going through the pandemic. There's a reason why we spent some time going through Psalm 119 and just reminding ourselves of who God is, what his word is and what it is to mean to us as God's people. There's a reason that we as God's people are reminded over and over in Scripture of, number one, who we are in Christ and then what we have in Christ. That security, that Romans 8 truth, that everything that happens, everything that happens under the sun, God is using for his glory and the good of his people. And that nothing can snatch us out of his hands. Absolutely nothing. We as Baptists believe in the security of the believer. We believe that once you belong to Jesus, nothing can change that. He doesn't decide for a while you're His and then change His mind and toss you. Security of the believer. We hold to that firmly. Because the Scriptures teach that clearly. And that's security of who we are in Christ. And of of whether this temple is a spiritual temple, whether it is an earthly temple, whether it is the people of God, as, as the dwelling place of God, regardless of that, there's a safe place and there's an unsafe place. Are you in Christ today? Then you're safe. If you're outside of Christ today, you're not. That's the bittersweet message that John was told to eat and assimilate and proclaim. That's the bittersweet message that we as God's people today are told to proclaim. God does so love the world that he gave his only son that whoever believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. That's the sweet gospel. Have you trusted that? Turning from your sin and trusting in Jesus. It doesn't happen because you're related to someone who's in church. It doesn't happen because you're born someplace in the Bible Belt. It doesn't happen because you're a good moral person. Because we've all sinned and fallen short. It happens because the Spirit of God works and prompts in your heart to see your sin and see the truth of what the Scriptures say about you and me. And to see the reality and the truth of who Jesus is. That He laid down His life and paid the price so we don't have to fear this wrath to come. Have you trusted in Jesus? If so, you're safe. If you've not, then... John 3, 17 and 18 just reminds us that God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that whoever believed in him would have life. But if you do not believe in Jesus today, you are condemned already. You don't have to wait for judgment day. That's the bittersweet truth of God's word. And and so we can rest in that and we can just rest in the safety and security of. That we belong to Christ. Let's pray. Lord, you, you know my heart. You know, we we're supposed to get further in this today, Lord, but we're just going to trust you with this short part. And Lord, we just pray that you'll ground your people today in the security of who we are in Christ. That As Peter tells us, Lord, that once before we were, we were not a people, but now we're the people of God. Once before, Lord, we were just scattered and lost. And now you are building us into a spiritual dwelling place, Lord, that we are that for you. Every individual, every home that's in Christ, every marriage. Lord, thank you for that. So today, Father, we just thank you for the word that secures us in Christ, the promise that we have in Jesus. Let that God not be something that keeps us comfortable, but let it motivate us, compel us, and throw us out into this world around us to take the message. To make disciples. Father, we pray that in Christ's name. Amen.